Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. It's really like a pleasure for me to be here and moderate uh, this event uh, where we're going to, you know, take a closer look at, at your placenta. So it's, uh, you know, it's a privilege, it's an honor uh, to moderate this event. I really feel that uh, I have like a strong connection with the speakers and maybe somebody in the audience. Uh, as 11 years ago, uh, my wife and I uh, experienced uh, preeclampsia with our first daughter. And uh, as you can imagine, you know, she was like, she was born at 29 weeks, uh, two pounds, eight ounces. And she spent, she spent all, almost like uh, four months in the NICU. So as you can imagine, it was like a very difficult time as a parent, first-time parent, but it was also like a, a, a very hard time as a scientist, as I am, because I, I recognized that medicine really had very little that could do to predict, prevent, or manage, you know, some, some like, a, like that type of like a prenatal complication. So that's why I'm very excited uh, to be here today, uh, we have here uh, as two speakers, Dr. Manaparast and Dr. Karen uh, Meston, and uh, they are uh, two stem cells experts, and they are uh, basically bringing us today some uh, or this, of their studies where they're modeling, uh, or the way they're modeling uh, human placenta development, and also how they are evaluating um, placentas after uh, delivery. So that hopefully is going to bring us uh, sort of like to the next steps towards uh, uh, personalized medicine and personalized care. So uh, it's my pleasure to introduce actually Dr. Mana Parast today. So she is the uh, co-director of the Center for Perinatal Discovery. Uh, but she's also uh, the, the director of perinat- perinatal pathologies at, uh, at uh, UCSD. She is uh, a scientist. She's a physician. She's also a friend. I used to work with her uh, in her lab a few, few years ago at this point. And um, uh, she has a very well-established lab here at Sanford Consortium where she is studying the development of placenta across the gestation and she's pioneering uh, some of the studies to use human primary, human pluripotent stem cells for modeling placenta um, in vitro. So please, it's a great honor to have here our first speaker, uh, Dr. Manaparast. Please take it away. Thank you so much, Matteo. And it's uh, such a pleasure to be here today and to have the opportunity to share with you um, our research on uh, the placenta. So I'm going to talk to you today about the human placenta. And um, it's one of the most underappreciated organs. And back in 2014, when the National Institute for um, Child Health and Human Development um, launched the Human Placenta Project, they declared that uh, this organ was one of the uh, most poorly understood um, organ uh, in humans. And uh, they were right. 
Um, hopefully by the end of this talk, I'll also be able to share with you um, and that you can appreciate that the placenta is also hugely underestimated. So some very sort of broad um, facts about the placenta um, that is sometimes misunderstood. So a lot of times people think that the placenta is a maternal organ. It in fact is a fetal uh, derived organ. It has the same genetic material as the baby. It is sometimes uh, referred to as the diary of intrauterine life because it bears on it marks of uh, uh, you know, the occurrences uh, during um, life in utero, um, all the events during pregnancy. And also a lot of times it's thought of as being primarily a barrier. You know, so a lot of people think of it as a barrier between, uh, for example, pathogens that might um, infect mom during pregnancy, so a barrier between um, mom and baby. However, it's much more than that. So I hope to um, touch on that a little bit today as well. So with that in mind, I am going to, the, uh, my portion of the talk, I'll focus a little bit on placental development. And then um, I'll talk to you about uh, pathologic evaluation of the placenta after delivery, which is what I do as a clinician. And then finally, I'll end about um, how we, uh, in our lab, we use uh, stem cells to model this organ in vitro. So to begin with uh, placental development, so you can see here um, uh, in, uh, uh, in utero, uh, the baby attached uh, by the umbilical cord to the placenta, which is attached to the maternal uterus. And um, where this um, fully developed organ actually comes from early in development is from these outer cells of the human embryo. This is um, on the left-hand side, you're seeing uh, the human blastocyst. So a very early stage, around five days um, after fertilization uh, of a stage of human uh, development. So what you're seeing here on the inside is a group of cells that are referred to as the inner cell mass. And these cells give rise to the baby, while these outer cells of the blastocyst that are called trifectoderm, um, or TE for short, these cells give rise to the placenta. So very early on, these trifectoderm cells differentiate. And what that means is that uh, they undergo a process to form cells with specialized functions. And they form these cells that are generally referred to as trophoblasts. So these are the specialized placental cells. Their name comes from uh, the Latin root tropho, which means to feed, um, understandably so, because that's one of the functions of the placenta. So now when you start with the trifectoderm, first, the first thing that happens is that these cells expand and give rise to what are called trophoblast stem cells. So these are the stem cell precursors, precursor of the placenta. And then um, as uh, these cells uh, grow, they further differentiate. This is again very early in placental development. They give rise to two main cell types. One of them is called the extravillous trophoblast and the other is the syncytiotrophoblast. So as you can kind of see, these are, this is a cart cartoon representation of uh, these cells, but basically as the stem cell develops into the extravillous trophoblast, they develop into these elongated cells that are very much like cancer cells. They're very invasive and they invade the maternal uterus and they help anchor the placenta uh, to the maternal uterus. Whereas um, on the right-hand side, you're seeing 
uh, the syncytial trophoblast, which comes from these stem cells fusing together to form these multinucleated cells, uh, which have different functions. So the stem cells actually just self-renew and make more of themselves, while the extravillous trophoblast help, as I mentioned, anchor the placenta to the uterus, and they directly crosstalk with maternal immune cells. So they help promote immune tolerance. Uh, this is how the, um, the placenta, which is in fact half dad, half mom, is tolerated by the mom's immune system. They also help uh, regulate, uh, these maternal immune cells help regulate the level of invasion uh, that these cells undergo in the maternal uterus. And it's a very interesting process uh, that has been studied over many years. Then on the right-hand side, the syncytiotrophoblast, as I mentioned, um, arise by cell-cell fusion of the stem cells. And these cells are the primary cells that are involved in nutrient and gas exchange. They produce uh, um, many different kinds of hormones. Um, they also help uh, evade the maternal immune system. They actually don't have, don't express uh, normally any molecules uh, that helps the maternal immune system recognize them. So they evade the maternal immune system in that fashion. They all are also um, a barrier against pathogens, but there are a lot more than that. They also help communicate with mom, and this uh, communication is sort of long-distance communication, unlike the extravillous trophoblast that actually um, communicate directly with the maternal immune cells the um, syncytiotrophoblasts secrete factors and um, extracellular vesicles, which communicate remotely with um, all different types of maternal organs, including uh, the maternal lung and um, other uh, maternal systems. Now, it is the formation of these cells early on in pregnancy that when, uh, when the formation of these cells or the function of these cells is affected early on in pregnancy, this is what gives rise to a lot of the different placenta-based pregnancy complications and neonatal complications that uh, we're gonna talk about today. So why do we look at the placenta after delivery? So again, as I mentioned, placenta is really thought of as a diary of intrauterine life because it bears the marks of uh, various events that have occurred throughout pregnancy. So um, very sort of generally, the reasons that a placenta would get sent to our department for evaluation is because either mom had a complication, uh, baby had a complication, or the placenta um, is uh, abnormal in uh, some uh, way or shape. A lot of times what we do as placental pathologists is that we confirm or identify the etiology of the maternal or neonatal complication, but occasionally we also um, through the placenta, by evaluating the placenta after delivery, we can actually see and provide evidence for a potential underlying maternal disease that has otherwise uh, not been yet diagnosed. And I'll show an example of that. And then probably most importantly, we can, by evaluating the placenta, we can actually find what is the risk of recurrence of this complication, uh, which can then inform uh, the parent's decision and the parent-doctor um, conversation um, in terms of the next uh, pregnancy. So one of the um, indications for placental examination is preterm birth. And preterm birth generally falls into two categories. There is uh, spontaneous preterm birth, which can be associated with amniotic fluid infection, with a congenital infection, uh, such as CMV, 
uh, chronic inflammation or uh, what's called as velitis of unknown etiology in the placenta. Whereas an indicated preterm birth, that's when um, the delivery is induced because of uh, a complication such as a maternal hypertensive disorder. As Matteo mentioned, preeclampsia is one of those. Um, you can also, uh, a woman can undergo uh, induction um, of, you know, and be delivered for a diagnosis of intrauterine growth restriction and also for maternal diabetes or macrosomia or a large for gestation baby. So here's an example of a placenta that's showing inflammatory cells in the fetal membranes and is also showing inflammatory cells coming out of these large fetal blood vessels that are on the fetal surface of the placenta. And this is evidence of um, chorioamnionitis with a fetal response. This is um, something that we see relatively often with spontaneous preterm birth, secondary to amniotic fluid infection. That's relatively common. Here's a more rare example of what we see uh, during placental evaluation, and that is a placenta that is um, very stiff and also very pale. And you can see that on cross-section here, the placenta, which is normally this very red spongy organ, has a lot of areas that are fibrotic and white. And what this is is um, a lesion called massive perivillous fibrin deposition, um, or maternal floor infarction. This is a relatively rare condition that is associated with intrauterine growth restriction, but it's very important to diagnose because this can actually be the cause of recurrent IUGR in the setting of maternal autoimmune disease. So occasionally we see these cases where mom does not have an, uh, a, this diagnosis just yet. And so by evaluating the placenta in the setting of IUGR, not only can we identify the underlying etiology for IUGR, but we can also pinpoint that she should probably be screened for autoimmune disease as this condition can actually be prevented if she's diagnosed and treated in a subsequent pregnancy. And then finally, here's another example of a setting where we would um, evaluate the placenta and you can see here an abnormal cord insertion. This is referred to as a membranous cord insertion or velamentous cord insertion. And here it's associated with um, a thrombus, a, a clot in the fetal circulation and avascular villi. And when these findings are present in the setting of a stillborn baby, this can provide evidence for a cord accident. And this way the family can be told that the risk of recurrence of this lesion is low. So again, some examples of what we see um, on the perinatal pathology service and um, how they can serve as um, informing the parents and the doctor about uh, the various complications. But really, I want to talk also about um, you know, pathologic evaluation of the placenta, but beyond the immediate outcomes. So what we're learning more and more over the past uh, 10 or so years is that by evaluating the placenta, we can identify maternal risk factors. So by identifying, for example, myometrial fibers um, at the maternal surface of the placenta, we can identify uh, patients that are at increased risk of developing what's called a morbidly adherent placenta, or um, also referred to as placenta accreta spectrum. By identifying severe forms of decidual vasculopathy, by looking at the few maternal vessels that are present in the fetal membranes, we can um, 
by, by diagnosing this lesion, we can actually identify patients that are at increased risk of uh, cardiovascular complications later in life. And then with respect to the baby, we are learning more and more over the last 10 or 20 years um, this idea that in utero life can actually program the baby for both health and disease later in life. So this is a hypothesis that is uh, referred to as developmental origins of health and disease, or DOHAD. And uh, this really means that during in utero life, uh, babies getting programmed, the baby's organs are getting programmed for um, you know, either health or disease, and this, these effects uh, can extend to the lung, liver, uh, brain, uh, metabolism. So pediatric uh, risk of obesity, for example, um, can be determined by in utero life. So placental evaluation can really serve as a determinant of, um, uh, of life exposures and uh, what is potentially to come if we can um, harness that information. And this is what we do here at the Center for Perinatal Discovery, is our focus is on the human placenta as uh, a, a, you know, really a biomarker for uh, both maternal complications and neonatal adverse outcomes and uh, programming of disease. So what we have been doing um, here at the center over the past uh, 10 or 12 years is we focused on a, uh, following a women uh, during pregnancy. So our reproductive cohort has consisted of consenting patients early on in their pregnancy and following them, documenting, documenting any uh, underlying diseases that mom has or any pregnancy complications that she develops, any exposures that she has during pregnancy. And then we really focused on more immediate neonatal um, outcomes. And uh, what we're hoping to do going forward, however, is to also be able to follow these babies, um, at least uh, first during the five years of life and then later into adulthood, in order to better understand the programming of disease. And so our work is centered around this perinatal biorepository, which is rich with maternal samples and also placental and cord blood samples at delivery. And we've used these uh, samples to identify biomarkers for prediction and diagnosis of pregnancy complications, uh, to also probe the mechanisms of uh, perinatal loss, um, and then hoping again to go into the direction of developmental origins of health and disease. But today, to as kind of the last portion of my talk, I'd like to touch on how uh, we are using stem cells to model the human placenta as one of the big efforts at our center. So really, one of the issues with having only the placenta at delivery to evaluate is that you're looking at an organ that basically has gone through its life, and so you're kind of doing a post-mortem on it. And so while it is important and you can learn a lot of information about what's happened, uh, you're really not able to probe what happened to this organ early um, in, uh, in its life. So what we're doing here at the center is we are banking umbilical cord cells, and through a process called reprogramming, by introducing four specific genes into these cells, we can reprogram these cells and uh, form uh, what are called uh, induced pluripotent stem cells, or IPS, IPSCs. These IPSCs can then be converted to trophoblast stem cells, these placental precursors, and be used to model um, the early development of this particular placenta, no matter whether it was normal or diseased. And so we've actually used these IPS-derived trophoblasts, and our publications, our work have um, shown that 
these iPS-derived trophoblasts have very similar responses to placenta-derived trophoblasts, for example, to conditions like hypoxia. We have studied these cells that are affected by trisomy 21 and have shown that just like a placenta that is affected by trisomy 21, the iPS cells that are affected by trisomy um, also have the same defect in formation of syncytiotrophoblast. And most recently, we have, in fact, identified abnormalities in trophoblast differentiation and responses to oxygen tension that iPS cells from placentas affected by preeclampsia exhibit. And so this has been very exciting to show this proof of concept that, in fact, placenta-based pregnancy disorders can be modeled using iPS cells. Going forward, what we're also doing is we're banking maternal blood cells from the same pregnancies, and we hope to also reprogram these into iPS cells, and then subsequently differentiate them into maternal cells that are at the implantation site, including uh, decidual cells and maternal immune cells, because then we can uh, combine these and actually model events at the implantation site um, which uh, can give rise uh, to disease later on in pregnancy. And this really could provide, for the first time, uh, a way to model uh, this uh, kind of inaccessible uh, site uh, uh, during uh, an ongoing uh, pregnancy. And in addition, um, we can, again, use these same cells, the placenta-derived iPS cells, because as I mentioned, these have the same genetic material as the baby. We can also use them to model fetal organs, such as the lung or the brain. And we're hopeful that in the near future, we can also uh, put these two cell types, both the iPS-derived trophoblast and the iPS-derived uh, fetal lung or brain cells, in order to be able to understand how the placenta, in fact, programs uh, fetal cells for uh, normal uh, or uh, for development of disease. And with that, I would like to thank my group um, here at the Sanford Consortium, and I would like to pass it on to Karen. So thank you, Mana. That was like a very interesting um, talk with a lot of information. Uh, our second speaker today is uh, uh, Dr. Karen uh, Meston. Uh, she's like the division chief of neonatology uh, at UC San Diego and Radies Children's Hospital. She has like a significant experience in uh, clinical and research. And she actually recently joined us like a year ago after spending like 20 years at the Northwestern uh, University. So her lab here is focused on uh, identifying some uh, biomarkers that could be useful in um, uh, predicting, preventing, and managing uh, some serious conditions that may affect high-risk infants. So it's a great pleasure to have Dr. Meston here with us today. And, you know, the podium is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Matteo and, and Mana. So as Matteo mentioned, I am a neonatologist. Uh, 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 neonatologists are specialized pediatricians who maybe notoriously have been known to be, have to be cool and calm in the delivery room. Um, uh, for all kinds of cases, um, what they are not good at doing is um, being on TV. So, 
Uh, this is a little bit different for me, but thank you so much uh, to the Stem Cell Program uh, for, uh, for organizing this uh, program here today. So let me just start out with the basics, because a lot of you are probably wondering, what is a neonatologist and what do we do? Um, I, again, like I said, we're a subspecialty of pediatrics. Um, I'm trying to bring a little bit of, of a bedside approach uh, to this presentation and let you know how to bring to life this organ that Mana has um, talked to you about, the placenta, and how complex it is and what it means um, uh, to the neonatologist. Um, a lot of the research um, and attention that we put on the placenta is really based on the maternal side and maternal health and what we've been able to do over the past uh, 10 to 20 years uh, through our research and through a lot of the um, initiatives that we have in clinical care is to try to bring um, the placenta as a diagnostic tool um, to help improve uh, not only um, newborn uh, care and, and management, but also long-term health of our pediatric patients. Um, neonatologists is a, um, a work in the NICU in a hospital-based uh, hospital setting, and our patients uh, are those who require um, critical care and monitoring uh, for illnesses and special uh, needs. Uh, the most common being prematurity, that is babies born at less than 37 weeks, so um, before their due date. Birth weight, uh, low birth weight, so infants weighing uh, less than 2,500 grams or those uh, about four and a half pounds is usually kind of an entrance criteria for requiring NICU monitoring. Intrauterine growth restriction in which um, uh, a baby's growth may be tracking below uh, what they're expected to be growing in utero. And so at the time of birth, their birth weight is much lower than um, what their expected gestational age weight should be. Um, we also create, uh, treat conditions in which there are congenital malformations, birth defects, uh, sepsis, and uh, infections in the intrauterine and newborn period. Breathing difficulties um, such as respiratory distress and apnea, which is when a baby kind of forgets to breathe, and those are babies that required require um, uh, critical care and um, uh, continuous monitoring for their blood pressure and vital signs. Um, a lot of babies also present with um, concerns for, um, for seizures and other delayed transition um, due to their physiology. A little bit about the history of neonatology. I've been doing this for um, over 20 years, over 30 years, if you count all the training that it does take to become a neonatologist. And what we've seen over the years is many advances in NICU care um, that have led to significant decline in morbidity and mortality um, in our very tiniest patients. Uh, this has been achieved through a combination of technologic advances, um, enhanced understanding of newborn physiology, much of which has been uh, through research and improved obstetric and pediatric practices. Um, this is a graph from the March of Dines Foundation 2022, uh, which shows a pretty um, stable uh, preterm birth weight of about 10% in the U.S. So if you think about uh, 3.6 million births in the U.S., that about 360,000 of those are preterm and require um, NICU monitoring. But even above that, about 10 to 15% of babies born each year um, because of other diagnoses other than prematurity um, are admitted to the NICU each year. And as I said, I'm the division chief of neonatology here. I started last year in October, and I um, oversee this amazing group of um, over 25, almost 30 neonatologists. 
And we actually cover 10 NICUs in the, in the uh, San Diego area, spanning all the way up to um, Murrieta and all the way down to Chula Vista. Um, and as you can imagine, there are many more NICUs across the country. And many people wonder, like, how many babies are, uh, you know, are, are actually being born each year. And for a neonatologist that works in the NICU, um, there's, uh, you know, for any one neonatologist, it seems like almost a baby a minute. So there's a lot out there. Um, Again, like I mentioned, there have been many advances in uh, neonatal medicine, and that has been um, all through, or a lot of it through maternal fetal research. Um, if you go back to the 1990s, um, the big um, advance in, in um, neonatal and newborn care was the development of um, a medication called surfactant, which we could give to newborn babies who had premature Lung, lungs, which allowed them to survive. And over the years, um, many, you know, three decades ago, even a baby born at 35, 34, 35 weeks, their survival was tenuous. Um, now we are treating babies um, born at, at um, even lower than 25 weeks gestation um, who have uh, very favorable outcomes uh, in the new neonatal era. Um, again, many advances in medications, nitric oxide, different forms of mechanical ventilation. There have been um, uh, strategies and uh, innovations to improve and protect the brain, um, which we didn't have before through therapeutic hypothermia, prenatal steroids, human genome project, non-invasive perinatal testing. And in the, even most recently, um, and very relevant to this group here, is that in the 2020s, just recently, there's been a very high interest in looking at stem cell therapies and regenerative therapies um, to treat and um, improve the neonatal outcomes um, in our high-risk patients. And that has kind of led me to um, studying the placenta, as Mana um, explained um, in her presentation, that many of the keys to understanding and also treating ne neonatal problems for our babies um, is in the placenta. And this is something that I've come to realize over my many years as a neonatologist, is that a lot of the things that we're treating actually were at the crossroads of maternal and fetal health and that if we are very careful and we are very um, dedicated to understanding what that pathophysiology is, uh, that we can improve not only the neonatal care of our patients, but also support their long-term growth and development. So you can see here the placenta, highly complex, as Mana said, poorly understood, often discarded, and still is, unfortunately, in our uh, newborn management of, of children. But if you think of all the clues that could actually be um, understood in terms of fetal brain development, even programming of the neonatal heart and lung diseases that may be um, precursors to inflammatory conditions such as chronic lung disease, asthma, pulmonary hypertension, which are my areas of focus um, in the placenta. And again, um, a lot of my research interest started in really um, not only treating um, the baby, but also treating the family and the mother um, even before delivery and realizing that there are many things that, um, that uh, uh, women are exposed to during pregnancy um, that may be linked to um, early childhood outcomes. Things like maternal psychosocial stress and mental health, environmental toxins, diet and nutrition, and even physical activity. These are all things that um, the, the modern era of neonatal research is partnering with, with maternal fetal medicine and obstetrics 
and perinatal pathology to understand uh, these mechanisms and how they may actually tie to complications such as preeclampsia, um, intrauterine infection, and chronic diseases such as diabetes, asthma, and obesity. And so this is just an overview of uh, my very complex research, which um, could not be possible without the many lab members and the many of my collaborators um, in this area of neonatal research um, at the maternal fetal interface. And so in, in general, what I've been doing over the past 10 to 15 years and now um, hope to continue full speed ahead with the Center of Perinatal Discovery and with the uh, support of the stem cell program is to take um, the placentas of the babies that we treat, um, whether they're premature or whether they're full-term and healthy, um, to study not only the histology, but also collect these very precious progenitor and stem cells from cord blood and look at the milieu of the stem cells by looking at the plasma that, in, in which these stem cells arise, separating these cells, doing some pretty intricate and very um, state-of-the-art uh, gene mapping studies, RNA-seq, single-cell RNA-seq, and a lot of the big data omics approaches um, that we have available here at UC San Diego. And we're also able to um, go to the bench and um, take these cells and the information from our patients um, and, and put them, incorporate them into humanized mouse models um, and, and mimic um, uh, diseases such as bronchopulmonary dysplasia or chronic lung disease uh, through exposure um, to hyperoxia and other things that we, we give to our premature babies um, during their NICU stay. And the whole thought of this and the whole mission behind this is, again, the development of novel drugs, technologies, and, and um, interventions uh, for our NICU patients. These are just a couple of the recent um, publications that we've um, been able to uh, disseminate uh, in, the, in the past couple years. Um, the most recent one is from JCI Insight. This is work that was done in Chicago, but is now um, being extended here at UCS, UC uh, San Diego, um, where we're taking our monocyte progenitor cells from cord blood, uh, and we're, we're looking at the gene expression. And what we're finding is that depending on the placental pathology and the placental dysfunction from which these um, specific monocytes come that you can actually see differences in how these um, monocytes express genes and also um, how they function in animal models. Um, and this really um, brings uh, highlights the importance of looking at our stem cells and saying, are these actually cells that can be um, programmed in the fetal and um, developing uh, intrauterine period where the placenta actually may be responsible for programming not only the monocyte progenitors, um, but also uh, stem cells. Um, and so this was another paper that we, uh, another study that we conducted in which we looked at um, uh, families, uh, contributed their cord blood over 200 families um, in Chicago. Uh, and we did uh, quite an extensive uh, studies of um, looking at um, uh, the the um, concentration and composition of their stem cell components and found that um, uh, that they are different according to the placental histology. And, and the work also that uh, we're doing uh, with twins, and the reason why I bring up this paper is that our family that um, has graciously uh, come today um, are uh, one, one of my patients in the NICU, um, a family of twins. 
Um, and, and so we do quite a bit of work in this area in which even when you think about the interuterine environment of twins being the same, but their placentas may be different. And so what we've also been able to study is looking at the discordance in placentas from twin A and twin B and seeing that that actually may impact um, lung and health um, uh, outcomes um, in, in our newborn patients. Um, and beyond uh, the research, that's just a, a short overview of what we do. There's so much more. But the real question that, uh, um, that I have uh, wa wanted to bring forth to you uh, is this question of, is there a role for the placenta in NICU management? Because believe it or not, with all this compelling evidence, uh, the placenta is really not used um, at the bedside in, in NICU management. And this is one of the missions that we really want to push forward, that um, is there a role that actually if we, um, and I underline management here because um, placental pathology has been used to look at uh, neonatal outcomes, like what are your outcomes, but can it be used to actually tailor how we treat our babies? Um, and that's something that's a very novel um, area um, and a novel role for the placenta. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we had this information that our pathologists provide? Um, we can look at inflammatory and vascular changes along the different domains of placental histology, which I've shown you here, and actually be able to tailor it a little bit more to a baby who may require um, steroids, a preterm baby who may require steroids, a baby who may um, benefit from antibiotics or tailored antibiotics, or even closer monitoring for late onset inflammatory conditions such as weight gain and nutrition, diabetes, immune disorders, and whether the, in placentas in which um, births arise from vascular dysfunction, if those are the patients that we need to be thinking more about stem cell-based cell therapies, um, growth factors, antioxidants, um, and closer monitoring for other conditions such as hypertension and cardiovascular disease. And then also the flip side of this is the power of a normal placenta. Can a normal placenta actually be valuable in reducing monitoring and saying that even though um, babies may be showing soft signs of um, some perturbations or disruptions um, in their delivery experience, um, but maybe they're more resilient because of the placenta, that may lead to faster screening, decreased NICU stay, and facilitate discharge and overall our most important um, mission to, um, to really improve and support the family experience um, in the NICU and support our babies um, uh, um, through um, early infancy and pediatric life. These are some of the upcoming studies that we have planned um, here at UCSD and through um, my lab and also through the stem cell program is to leverage a lot of these omics genomics epigenomics, transcriptomics, um, uh, some of the newer um, uh, technology that we have in metabolomics to actually um, define pathways um, of exposure um, that may be there during pregnancy that we can't see right now unless we look a little bit deeper. So those are the exciting things um, that I wanted to share with you, and I wanted to give a great um, uh, uh, appreciation and thank you uh, for your attention. This is uh, my lab. Again, uh, I am very, very grateful to all the work uh, that, that these uh, young people do, many of them in the stages of their training um, that have been inspired by the work uh, that we do at the bedside in neonatology. I actually have a website now that these young people have designed for me. So go visit www.mestinlab.com. And the most important thing 
um, that drives us um, as neonatologists, as researchers, as bedside clinicians, um, are the families that we take care of. And a very, um, very uh, happy story um, that I wanted to share with you is that um, even as my in my first couple months here as division chief, um, I had the pleasure of taking care of uh, these little two twins, um, Colin and Patrick Higgins. And within a couple months after their discharge, um, the, um, the, the family, um, Mr. and Mrs. Higgins, who are here today, uh, reached out to us and um, uh, we're very thankful for their experience in the NICU. The, the, these are the kind of um, families, and there are many of them out there, um, that really inspire us to make our job better and um, support our families, um, not only uh, um, the, the babies that we treat, but the families um, that, that they go home to. And so really thankful again for this wonderful environment and this wonderful community of, um, of parents, families, researchers, um, and um, everyone. So thank you again, and I'll um, hand it back to you. And Mana wanted me to put our um, website for the Center for Perinatal Discovery down there too. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. It was like very inspiring as well. As I mentioned in the agenda, we have also like the uh, Higgins family yeah. here speaking with us. And please take the lead. Thank you, Mateo. And please, uh, happy to hear the, the, your story. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, my name is Greg Higgins, and this is my uh, superhero wife, Catherine <laughs> Catherine Higgins, and you guys saw the picture of our two boys, Colin and Patrick, there. And um, our experience at the NICU was, uh, I guess, uh, spoiler alert, phenomenal. However, it didn't start phenomenal. It started very scary. Uh, and it started with, um, well, Colin was born, and he peed, promptly peed on everybody. And that was exciting and great. But then when Patrick was born, he wasn't breathing normally. And so immediately what they did is they separated them. Patrick went to um, the NICU or on his way down to the NICU where they gave him a, um, a, some breathing apparatuses. And then, um, sorry, Patrick did that. And then Colin stayed up with his mom and stayed um, uh, with in the nursery or in that, in that area. So I followed Patrick and Catherine stayed with Colin. Um, shortly thereafter, um, Patrick um, exhibited some signs of a seizure. And this is where I learned the term of uh, signaling, which I had no idea what it was until that moment, and I was there for it. And it was extremely scary because there was a, you know, the word seizure was brought into play there. Um, and uh, so at that point, there was a slew of testing that needed to be underdone uh, and undertaken on, on Patrick to uh, find out what caused the signaling, what caused him to do that. Um, and how we can resolve that uh, at the moment. Um, I don't want to blather too long. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we, he went underwent tests, a lot of tests, and he's attached to every um, sort of electrode and diode that we could possibly get onto his little head. Um, and uh, in the meantime, Pat Colin is with his mother. Colin exhibited the same sort of reaction. He, while up in the nursery with his mom, and where he started to hold his breath. And so at that point, both of them were in the NICU, uh, scaring us both, but giving us a little bit of sleep, which was helpful. Um, and I guess, Catherine, I'll let you jump in. I'm, I, I don't want to blather too much. I tend to 
<laughs> yammer, so I apologize. Um, but if you want to jump in. And no, yeah, I mean, we're just here to say thank you. I mean, what you guys are doing from your studies to, I mean, the placenta matters, right? So, I mean, as a patient, what the NICU does is just, I mean, so much. We're new parents. Our families are not here. They're, we're from the Midwest and, like, all hands on deck. And we were, it was great that we were a part of that care, a part of, like, the decision-making process. I mean, it was obviously frightening. We didn't deal with preeclampsia, but it was such a frightening experience. And it's the calmness and the the care we received from the nurses to, you know, the MAs, everybody that was there, um, they were, you know, rocking the babies. And just, I mean, there was, you know, there was volunteers there that were making signs for Patrick and for Colin and all of that just matters. And so what you guys do matters. And, you know, anything we can do to field questions and anything we can do as, as parents of these NICU parents, it's just you know, you guys are angels in our book. So um, just a thank you. And, you know, it's just so cool to see all the different studies and what, you know, what that means to, you know, the the patient and, and our kiddos as they grow. So um, it's really interesting what you guys are doing. And we're happy to be here. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Incredibly what we're here for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, I can, we can't thank you guys enough. You guys are so professional. And I, Catherine says that, you know, you allowed us to make decisions too. Um I solve problems for a living. It's what I do, and I'm passionate about it. I'm an engineer, and I uh, run an engineering department, and that's what I do. And this was the first time presented with a problem that I can't solve. But I had so much solace. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. How about that? <laughs> but yeah, we, it just you guys mean a lot, and yeah. it helped, helped, you know. It's yeah. such a frightening thing as new parents, so... What the NICUs do and what you guys do is so cool from Temecula to Chula Vista. I mean, the parents yeah, that you impact and what you guys do is just, you know, there's no words for it. So, no. yeah. Which clearly I exhibited there <laughs> just a couple seconds ago. But thank you guys very much. And thank you guys for continuing to lead, uh, be at the cutting edge. Yeah, I mean, of the, the long days you have in the labs and all of that, it's just, that matters. So, yes. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Even though you don't think that uh, your placenta mattered in your case, um, from my from my standpoint, um, being a neonatologist for a very long time, that it was that thought like, what if we what if we had a placenta? Because um, we we did go back and look at um, Colin and Patrick's um, and your placenta, um, which is mom and dad's, um, uh, and uh, and and they were they were normal. And so, ha- again, like I say, having that, um, that reassurance, is that another biomarker that we could add um, to our armamentarium to support uh, families and provide some, um, some you know, reassurance? Um, the, 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 the experience that you presented is actually um, when, when someone asks what's the most frustrating um, uh, type of uh, um, problem that you um, encounter in the NICU, you know, we um, take care of a lot of very critically ill and sick patients, but sometimes it's the ones that are well, um, uh, which uh, they are now, but that uncertainty is really hard. Um, and it's it's hard for families. And um, again, even though we're very advanced in neonatology, there's so much more that we need uh, to learn. And, um, and I think that we're making headway on this, and, and it is through um, having that feedback from our families. So, so um, there is a question about, um, you know, like a person having, I think it, it all goes back to um, prediction and prevention as well. There is this um, question about like uh, uh, this person having like some very serious issues 
during the first, you know, like uh, two pregnancies. And so she's asking, you know, like what kind of advice, you know, you guys can give her for future uh, pregnancies. Again, probably this one like, goes back to uh, prediction and prevention, but. Um... Well, I can start by saying that this is where the placenta and evaluation of the placenta after delivery can play a role. Um, unfortunately, we're still sort of limited in terms of um, the information that we can provide in an ongoing pregnancy. That's one of the um, focuses for our center is, you know, collecting maternal blood samples or maternal urine, other biofluids during an ongoing pregnancy, probing that in order to be able to sort of probe placental function. Um, that's something we don't have yet and we're working towards. But um, we do have the ability to look at the placenta um, after delivery and that information, as Karen um, <clears throat> um, discussed, you know, there are um, main uh, patterns of placental injury that are either vascular or inflammatory, identifying those uh, in correlation with uh, the pregnancy and neonatal outcomes can really uh, give a lot of insight in terms of uh, recurrence rates. So I don't know if you want to address that as well. Yeah, um, that, that's a great question. Um, I know that that's a challenge that we've, we've tackled. You know, um, there, there are studies looking at um, you know, whether we could actually image the placenta, I think that's something that um, that the center is working on now. Like, can you can you image the uh, placenta in, in an MRI similar to how advances we've made in fetal MRI during pregnancy? And I, I think those um, technologies and those developments are coming. Um, there's also developments where are you know can we look at biomarkers that are circulating in mom um, that that have been actually produced or released by the placenta. Um, that may tell us about whether um, a, a pregnancy is, is experiencing uh, placental dysfunction in terms of inflammatory or vascular uh, problems. But again, I think those are on the horizon and they're coming, but we don't, we don't have them yet. You have mentioned like, you know, there are some stem cell therapies, uh, given our you know, proximity here with the consortium as well. You know, if you could like maybe elaborate a little more on that one, thinking, you know, like in probably we're not talking about, you know, next year or in the next few years, but, you know, like see how you, you know, imagine what's your vision for in terms of your stem cell therapies applied uh, to this field. Yeah, so um, I, I, I do think they're on the horizon there. You know, there are there have been studies um, looking um, at uh, brain injury. Uh, where uh, uh, banked uh, stem cells have been used to regenerate uh, brain tissue. Um, so that's, um, those are um, kind of taken from adult studies, but the, um, you know, the application to neonatal brain injury um, is a, um, that, that one is probably the most advanced that we have. Um, there, there are other conditions, like could, could um, stem, uh, stem and progenitor cells be used to uh, regenerate intestinal tissue and um, babies that have uh, suffered from necrotizing enterocolitis or um, uh, intestinal dysfunction. There's actually stem cells being used in cardiac um, congenital heart uh, defects, such as uh, hypoplastic uh, left heart, where you can uh, maybe there's some potential to regenerate um, cardiomyocytes. Um, uh, for, for so, so all, again, almost every organ, there is an application um, that that uh, that stem cells could be relevant uh, for for the developing um, 
neonate um, as early as even the fetal stages. Um, I'll add to that, that not just stem cells, but sort of stem cell derived factors. So mesenchymal stem cells actually from the placenta have been found to have very sort of pro repair functions um, in many different settings. And, uh, you know, one hope um, is that uh, maybe not the injection of cells themselves, but, you know, identifying factors that they secrete could um, provide um, uh, treatments for things like, you know, chronic lung disease or even prevention of development of chronic lung diseases, for example, in a patient with bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Thank you, Mana. Thank you, Karen. And, you know, like, also, like, I want to give the chance also to the family here if they want to also to tell us a little more uh, about, you know, like, their, their experience, especially in the NICU. I mean, I know it, it's a very, you know, particular time of your life, but you know, there are like also some, you know, like uh, it, it was a good outcome uh, for you. So, you know, like uh, my experience, it was really like, you know, a lot of interaction with nurses and, and doctors. And, you know, I can only like speak highly about like that type of experience that, you know, it was very important to me, but I'm sure that, you know, also you guys have like something that you maybe want to add. So in my experience, the, the scariest thing is in a, in a NICU or in that site, sort of setting is the unknown. And it's you don't know what you don't know, especially Catherine and I are medical beings. We're educated and we, we can learn very quickly, uh, but we don't know what we're, the boys were going through. And that was very scary to us. But as you mentioned, Mateo, the volume of nurses that were, were talking to us, the uh, amount of information that our doctors were providing to us and the clarity that they provided to us, that's what really gave us solace on top of the ability to address issues quickly, concisely, and with a, a plan that felt had been made years ago and was continuing and continuing and continuing. They were just executing on a plan that was already there. And for us, I saw that firsthand, and that's, that's really what made me feel good about leaving that space. And I, I told many of the doctors there, and I very much meant it, regardless of the outcome of the, the good or the bad, what happens with these boys, we knew, both Catherine and I, that the best people were working on it, and they were giving it 100%. And that was so touching to us, and I, I knew that leaving the place or, or going upstairs to try to sleep at night, that they're in the best of hands and that everybody down there is giving it a million percent. And whatever actions they were or decisions that they had to make, we knew that it was in the best interest of the boys and that it was going, we were going to get the best outcome humanly possible with these little guys. Um, so I think communication, I think that seeing that they had a, or, or knowing that uh, uh, there was a laid out plan and everybody there was so professional and calm. And uh, although I put up the facade that I was so calm inside, it was just <laughs> turmoil. It was what you saw up on the microphone a little, or on the stage a little bit earlier. But um, yeah, I think that was that was my experience. I mean, really, the best of the best are working in the NICU. I feel I think um, yeah, couldn't be more thankful and happy that we, the boys, ended up where they ended up. Yeah, and just the level of care too. Just having, I mean we had our providers come up to, I mean, I wasn't there, I was upstairs. So just having them come up and have us be a part of that, like yeah. not being able to even be there was 
was frightening. And so just having the the care from the providers that would come up and have those conversations and yeah. just all we can say is thank you. So in that opportunity, you know, the NICU, yeah. ooh, man, poor, poor there's something else. So unable to see Patrick for the first two days, and that's very frightening. Um, so yeah, she could just couldn't see the poor guy. And the poor girl couldn't see the, the little guy for, you know, the first two days or three days. And that was very, very tough and challenging, I think, for her. The fact that it was two stories away was so helpful. Like, I just got on an elevator and would just go right down. Uh, that, that was so incredible. Um, and then every time I was greeted with a happy smile on the face. And down to the, um, the, the the young lady coloring uh, name plate that said Patrick or Colin on it. Like, it was so touching, and it was great. And we felt like it's not home, but it's as good as it could be for these boys. Yeah, yeah we're just very important. There's places in the country that it's not even a NICU. So just the fact that we are yeah. where we are is just yeah, yeah. very fortunate. So, <laughs> again, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Reading about twins, they say, like, oh, we'll find out what level of NICU you have. And, like... Well, is there multiple levels? Or like, do we need that? <laughs> like, uh, of course, we didn't have that issue whatsoever at um, uh, UCSD. <laughs> Thank you so much. You touched on so many issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably too much. I know. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to take like 20 seconds to say thank you to the organizers. Thank you to... UCTV for broadcasting the event. And of course, like thank you to the speakers and to the audience, both in person here and online. So thank you so much for coming.